I'm Kate Daniels. Our kids and their education. It's something that is quite present in our thoughts so much of the time. And now, as school has just begun again, it's time that we might be really giving this a lot of thought. I feel my guest, Dr. Cornelius Grove, might give us some good fodder in planning how we'll work with our kids and approach this school year. Dr. Grove is an independent scholar and author of books on education. This morning, he brings us his stimulating new book, The Drive to Learn, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel. So let's meet him and hear about what we might be doing well and what we might want to do differently and help our kids be their ultimate best. Dr. Cornelius Grove, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. Good morning from Brooklyn, New York, on the other side of the continent. I'm happy to be with you. And I hope that you're not experiencing a, a lot of rain. I hear that the, that kind of moisture has drifted toward the East uh, Coast. We had a lot yesterday, but now, right now it's um, 9.45, 9.50 here. The sun's trying to come out. Well, good for <laughs> sunshine. Well, we're going to be uh, looking at a different kind of sunshine, and that is looking at our educational system. And you've certainly had experience as an educator. You've taught abroad. You've taught in Asia. And so you bring us some really important insights for an area where we are struggling, we've struggled, and hopefully by informing our listeners, parents, and educators alike, uh, we're going to get some important insights where we can maybe have this grassroots movement of creating the kind of educational system that's just so beneficial to our kids. I would uh, be very happy to contribute to such an end, believe me. And isn't it that you discovered in your work, both in teaching and, and research, in working in China, that there is such a difference between how we approach education here in the U.S. versus how they approach it in the East? There are many, many differences of all kinds. I'd like to clarify that although it is true that I have taught in China, I taught at the university level back in the 1980s, the research, the information that I'm drawing on is not so much from my personal experience, although that certainly is relevant. For decades, it's been known that students in East Asia, and by the way, East Asia is China, Japan, and Korea, have better academic outcomes are superior academically to students in the United States. And this, this difference has never changed. Uh, the uh, East Asian students, along with students from other, some other countries in the world, are always at or near the top of the international rankings. American students are always uh, near the middle or below the middle. And back around 1970, after the international comparative tests got started, uh, a group of comparative education researchers based in Hong Kong, most of them were Australian, uh, began to wonder how could they explain this? What, what was accounting for this? Because in America we had modern schools and a lot of money to throw at them and we had progressive methods and uh, presumably were a very modern uh, system with modern methods. Whereas in China, schools were impoverished Educators were using methods that these researchers uh, sort of thought were old-fashioned. 
and they just they just couldn't figure it out. And they they called this the paradox of the Chinese learner, and so they decided to look into it. And um, the most important thing to know about how they thought about this research and how hundreds of researchers who followed them uh, thought about it was that they just did not only look at schools. They looked at everything that could possibly contribute to superior learning of Asian students. They looked all around. You had a wide field of vision. Uh, eventually, if we come up close to the present, over 500 published research reports, in, including uh, a number of books, have been published about this on different aspects of it. And this is the research that I drew upon for writing The Drive to Learn. So it is very well grounded in a massive amount of research, and that research shows that, indeed, there are many differences, some of them really quite subtle at the cultural level between how Americans think about education and how East Asians think about education, both education in school and what goes on in homes with young students. There are differences everywhere. So are these differences, which I'd really like to delve into more so, are these differences then things that you feel we can actually change if we are wanting our students to excel and really learn well? Well, I'm, uh, I'm a professional interculturalist as well as an educator, and so I know that there are always uh, hurdles to just taking something from one culture and trying to enact it in the other, in another completely different culture. Nevertheless, I, I think, and many, many other researchers would say, you know, with, with care and with attention to cultural differences at uh, a wide range of levels, we can, in fact, learn from the East Asian experience. And that's why the subtitle of my book is What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel. Now, they did find uh, differences in schools and in classrooms and in teaching styles and uh, all sorts of things about teaching and learning and curriculum and classrooms and, and so forth and so on. But they also found many, many differences in homes and in child raising. And um, what this finally led me to, I originally started to uh, think that this book was going to be about all of it. And the more I delved into the research, the more it seemed to me I came to the same conclusion that some of these researchers were coming to, that the difference is de more dependent on what's going on in the home. The differences in the home are the biggest factor in making the difference between the superiority of uh, East Asian students compared with the relative mediocrity of American students. And what is that difference going on in the home? Well, let me, let me tell you what the outcome is, because I think that I, I, I don't want the outcome to get lost. The outcome uh, from all of this research, the outcome is that when compared with East Asian children, American children are less receptive to school learning. Now, what do I mean by receptive? By receptive, I mean uh, three things. Uh, receptive means that the child feels deeply committed to learn in school, expects to work persistently in order to learn well, 
and knows how to participate in the process of learning in school. And children show up at the schoolhouse door with this, uh, let's call it a mindset, with these sets of values and ways of thinking about why they're coming to school. And it leads to noticeably different behavior in the classroom. And it is behavior that makes it possible, uh, opens them up to take what's being delivered to them by teachers more seriously, uh, to have great respect for the teacher and for the material, and to want to study that material very hard and master it, to spend time and effort mastering it. And, and, but I think that the, and many other researchers think that the difference really is how they were raised by their parents. How they were raised by the parents is a matter of the, how the culture values education, how parents think about education and its importance to the family and to the child. And the, one of the big differences that has been massively researched is that when East Asians think about education, they bring an emotional component to it. Whereas when Americans think about education, they react to it in a practical way, which is not to say that they don't think it's important, but they think it's important in a practical sense, in the sense of, well, this is, this is going to enable me when I grow up to uh, have a good career, which is pretty far in the future for a lot of kids. And, uh, you know, there are many, many distractions these days. I don't need to enumerate what those are. There are probably more than ever. Uh, so the idea of getting ready for, for my future career is uh, a little bit uh, distant, I think, from many children. But what seems to happen in, in China, Japan, and Korea is that parents see parents and therefore children understand from their cultural perspective that learning enables one to be a better human being. It enables one, uh, the word that's often used by the researchers, it, it enables one to gain virtue. Virtue not only just in the sense of I myself am virtuous, but those cultures over there are very collectivist. They're very group-oriented. They're very family-oriented. And people think of themselves not as me, who also happens to be a member of this family, but as I am part of my family, my family and I are indistinguishable. And so the child in that part of the world, the child is understood by all members of the family to be very important to the family in terms of its ability to learn and the effort it puts to learn and the success it has in learning because that gives the family honor and what's known as face among its peers, among other families. This is a way that a family gains respect. And this isn't sort of possessive. It, it means that children are able not only to be of assistance in many, many different ways to their family, but also to their community. Again, the idea of group orientation is heavily family-oriented, but it's also in, in terms of other groups, such as community groups, groups that the parents might belong to, religious groups uh, of various kinds and whatever. So they think of it as uh, 
this is how I become a good human being, a virtuous human being, the best human being that I can be. And this is something that's important for me right now, not 15 or 20 years in the future, but right now. Uh, and this is how I bring my family honor and bring myself honor. And, um, and so I'm going to really work at this. So this is so the emotional component of becoming a good human being is one of the factors that's very, very important in explaining the, um, the passion that Asians bring to studying and to learning. And here, yes, we have more of that practical approach. And you, you look at it uh, in the book in more as American parents then are cheerleading their children rather than, I think, in the Asian cultures, the parents are there really stressing the importance of, of studying and, and doing their work so they can excel. One of the, I think that the differences that I see in terms of families, uh, the fundamental difference, and I, and I will definitely come back to cheerleaders, uh, the fundamental difference uh, seems to be this. Uh, American, American parents, after a child is born, middle-class middle parents, which probably make up uh, many of your listeners, uh, middle-class parents uh, very early in a child's life, infancy, toddlerhood, and so forth, they are very, very interested and very committed to jump-starting their child's ability to learn. And, you know, they, they read to them, they get them to count, they get them to begin to learn their ABCs and to learn colors. And they, if they have uh, the resources uh, locally and in terms of funds, they may even send them to programs like Little Einstein's and Little Mozart and Little Picasso. I see these here in Brooklyn, for example, and these are for very young children, and um, uh, and it's all for jump-starting their learning. But what the research seems to show is that once the child does, in fact, go off to school, not necessarily nursery school, but kindergarten and where the child's gone for most of the day, most American parents seem to step back at that point and say, all right, so, the, you know, the school, there are professional educators there, professional teachers, and they are now going to be responsible for our child's learning. We certainly take an interest in this. We certainly want to support that. Uh, we certainly want our child to do well. But it really, the re it's no longer our direct responsibility. In, the, in East Asia, it's different. The parents take that feeling of responsibility, uh, and they never relinquish it. Uh, they, they always feel that they and the child together are responsible for the child's learning. And just because the child goes off to school doesn't change that. The parents say that, you know, this is our child, this is our family, this is the standing of our family in the community. And uh, our child, and, and they do, by the way, they do think of the future as well. They, they do understand that that has an impact on careers. That is not lost on them, but it's really their number two uh, motiv motivation. And so what, what I, I like to say that, uh, to, to draw sort of a distinction here, American parents, after their child goes to school, say, well, it's the teacher's responsibility now, and we're supporting them where I think it, it makes sense to say about Asian parents, to say we're always responsible 
for our child's learning, and the teachers are supporting us. Now, you may be very well aware, as many people are, that teachers in uh, many parts of the world, and this is certainly true of East Asia, teachers get a great deal of respect in their communities. Anybody with, with academic learning and academic credentials doesn't need to be a doctorate. Anybody with good, solid learning uh, is deeply respected. This, this has been true over thousands of years in East Asia. There's big historical uh, reasons why this is so. And so teachers are respected, but they're, what they're responsible for is, to, is for delivering coherent lessons that enable the students in the class to learn very well. That's a little bit different from being responsible for their learning. For example, trying to pump up their motivation to want to learn the material. The East Asian children uh, pretty much arrive in classrooms ready to learn the material. They, they, are, they, want, they want to receive it. In fact, one of the observations that's often made about, about students in East Asian classrooms is that they don't ask any questions. They don't speak up. And people say, oh, they're just passive. They're not interested. They're just sitting there like bumps in a log. No, 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 no. This is not what, this is not what sober research for, for respectable so, social scientific research comes up with an entirely different answer. They are quiet because they are sitting at the seat of the master. They don't want to interrupt the teacher and, uh, and get in the way of whatever the textbook has to say or whatever they're studying on that day. They don't want to interrupt because the, the master, the, the source of the knowledge is there, and this is their opportunity to benefit from it. After class or at other times, they, they will approach the teacher with questions. Uh, so it's, it's just, um, it's, these are just some of the, some of the, the, the differences. So getting to uh, cheerleaders. So... What's been observed about American parents is that as their children get into first grade, second grade, and on, on up, they tend to, their role tends to be more of an encourager and a cheerleader. One of the things that's often observed about them is that if, a, if their child does poorly, you know, doesn't do well in a test or, or something like that, they, one of the things that they try to do is to preserve the child's self-esteem. They want the child not to be deeply discouraged by this and not think that, in fact, they're a useless person or anything like that. So they're, they're involved in preserving self-esteem. In East Asia, the way parents deal with children is that they're much more like a coach or a trainer. You think about an athletic coach. You think about think about going to a football game, high school, college, any football game, and you've got players, you've got coaches and trainers, and you've got cheerleaders. So what's happening between the games? What are the cheerleaders doing between the games? And what are the coaches and trainers doing between the games? The coaches and trainers are dedicating themselves to the ability of that team to do very, very well they are disciplining, they are drilling, they are practicing, they are going over and over things again and again so that they will get it right. And this is how Asian parents deal with, with their children. You seem to have a copy of the book there, so you see on the cover we have a picture of a mother with a daughter, and they're sitting in the kitchen, 
and they're looking at a workbook. This is very emblematic of things, something that's very well known to occur in East Asia and other parts of the world too, but I know about East Asia. And that is that parents will purchase additional materials for their child to work on after their homework is finished. So they're taking them beyond, not because they don't think the teacher is capable, but because they want their child to be at the top of the class and to master the material. And that's what's happening in that cover photo. Yes, it certainly does. What is it? Pictures speaks a thousand words, and that's what we are definitely observing here. Whereas here in the U.S., parents, uh, it's not that they won't help their children, but I think what you're saying is that there's not enough emphasis put on their uh, being able to stand on their own two feet in the classroom with the parent supporting them to do that. Well, I hadn't, I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms. I think I would be more comfortable saying that the parents are taking the responsibility. They are playing the role of a coach or a trainer, and they are trying to do everything they can and expect the child to study hard, study long, master the material. An Asian parent, for example, is not afraid to drill the child in something or to to go through repeated practice in order to get the basics down so that they can learn, so that when the child is in the classroom, they are very well prepared, know everything that they possibly could at that point to receive whatever the teacher, who is the source of knowledge, is going to put to them. So I don't know that I would think of it necessarily in terms of the child being self-reliant. Is that the term you used in the, in the classroom? But I think that's probably the outcome. Am I understanding your question here? Yes. So for American parents, then with their child, what you would suggest they do to become more of a coach is to really spend more time engaged with the child on schoolwork. Uh, Yes, and that's why the photo appears on the cover. That is a parent and a child, they happen to be Japanese, in a kitchen, and they are doing academic work, not necessarily schoolwork. I happen to know that that parent bought that workbook at Barnes & Noble. It didn't come from the school. And so the child, the homework is over, or maybe this is a weekend, and uh, this is not homework. That has been done. We are now going beyond the homework. We're going deeper. We're making sure that basic concepts are well understood and that their execution is mastered. And, you know, you do this for uh, (laughs) a number of years, the outcomes are, are well known. I mean, the outcomes speak for themselves, I think. But, yes, it is a very big commitment on the part of the parents. So, you know, let's give them their due. But it's a very important thing for them. I think, uh, you know, my question to parents is, how important is it to you that your child really excel academically? And if it's extremely important to you, way ahead of whatever second, then you have some good models to follow in those East Asian parents and read my book, and you'll find out how that all comes about, because this is what the research has has turned up, what is actually 
happening in those families. And these are the kind of things that are happening and the kind of emotion that's brought to it. And I would dare to say that parents, of course, want their kids to excel, but somehow their approach obviously has been just off center. So here, one of the key things is to have that commitment. You talk about having commitments, seven commitments to your child. This is one of them, to spend that additional time working with them to show them that you are involved in their life and want them to excel. Yes, and you're spending time with them on academic work. I mean, uh, I don't think American parents are notoriously short of spending time with their children, but how do they spend it? Not very much uh, in most cases in terms of mastering academic uh, learning and skills. But in East Asia, there's far, far more of that. You know, another contrast that's come up is that in the United States, the typical middle-class parent is very interested that their child be well-rounded. And let me say that I think that the colleges uh, have uh, also contributed to this. So well-rounded means, yes, uh, academics, for sure, that needs to be good, of course, but lots of other things. We're talking about, you know, summer camp and scouts and other organizations and church or synagogue or whatever religious institution, if, if they do belong to one. Uh, it means friends. It means social media. It means joining teams and um, on and on. And, well, if you're an East Asian... You've just got one top priority, and that's that the child excel. Everything else is a poor second to that. And their behavior shows that they really mean it. And I feel that with just touching on a couple of these points, but really expounded on well, and knowing that we have this book to refer to, The Drive to Learn, Dr. Grove, here we see that the education of our children, we need to look at it at home versus looking at it out there that, you know, it's the school system. We need to have different things going on with the schools. We need to take personal responsibility for our children. Yes. You know, when American thinks about uh, getting better education, they always think about what the adult educators and policymakers are doing, teachers, administrators, teachers' aides, uh, superintendents, boards of education, state organizations, uh, state legislatures. You know, it's about all sorts of adult issues. We never ask, well, you know, is there maybe something we could change in the children? I think what my research, which, again, I stress that it's based on hundreds of published research projects by others, I think what this research says, in addition to many other things, is that you want to have really good schools, then you need to change the children as well. And if we don't change the children, the kind of uh, educational outcomes that many of us desire are really beyond our grasp. Things can continue to get better. There's no doubt that improvements have been made. If we look back, especially across 100 or 150 years, the improvements are massive. But they're still not giving us the outcomes we want, and our children are still invariably, without exception, showing up pretty mediocre in the international comparative test. And the, the big change that needs to be made is in the children. What is the attitude and the emotion that they are bringing with them when they arrive at the schoolhouse door? 
So if we really are as committed as we say that we are, then the way to address this and learn more and become more of an advocate, I think, is to turn to this book, The Drive to Learn, What the East Asian Experience Tells Us About Raising Students Who Excel by Dr. Cornelius Grove. And you have a website, too, that will help people to get further information, right, Dr. Grove? Yes, I do. It has quite a lot of information about the book, including chapter summaries. It has an annotated bibliography of the 100 published research reports that I relied most heavily on. And you can also buy the book from the website. The website is the drive to learn dot info. Notice that it's dot info, which is a little bit unusual. The drive to learn dot info. Thank you, Dr. Grove. This has been critically important, and I do appreciate that you've made the information available to us both in the book and on your website, and of course, for taking your valuable time with us this morning. Well, thank you. I am so happy to be included, and it's a real pleasure for me to have an interview that lasts a whole half hour, which is a little bit unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're glad to do it in that form. (laughs) Thank you.